Thanks, Laura. Uh, before we get into the sermon, would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for this time where we get to press pause on the many other things that we have to think about and, and just to think about you, Lord. We pray that you would come now with your Holy Spirit into our hearts and open us up to hear the word that you have for us today, the, the word of love and comfort and assurance that you have for us. But God, we pray also that you would open us to the ways that you're pushing us and challenging us to grow, to change, to be transformed so that we can be the people that you are calling us to be. And we pray all of this in the name of your son who is the living word, amen. Well, I wonder, I wonder if anyone has ever asked you a really good question, a really good question, and I'll give you an example to, to kind of tell you what I mean by that. Um, so back when Kirsten and I first got married, there was one evening where we were cooking dinner together and we were gonna bake some chicken. And so I went to the fridge and I pulled out the package of chicken breasts and I pulled the chicken out of the package, but I didn't put it directly into the pan I went over to the sink, I turned on some water, and I started rinsing off the chicken breast. Because in my family, growing up, we would always rinse the chicken off before we cooked it. And I was always told that helps to get some of the germs off the chicken. Does any, anybody else ever do this? Am I the only one? Okay, thank you, I'm not completely alone. Yeah, so, um, so, so that's what I was doing, and I started doing that, and Kirsten looks at me, and she asked me a really good question. She said, why are you doing that? And I explained, well, it's to get some of the germs off the chicken. And then she looked back at me and she said, in love, you idiot. Um, no, she was very nice about it. But, but she said, you know, we're getting ready to cook that chicken at like 400 degrees for about 30 minutes. Don't you think that that's gonna take care of any germs on the chicken? And at that point, my mind is blown because that makes perfect sense. And I'm questioning everything. I'm a prideful person, so I didn't want to admit defeat, right? So I pull out my phone and I desperately start Googling. Like there must be some rational reason why a person would, would rinse off their chicken. Come to find out, not only is it unnecessary to rinse off your chicken, which apparently most of you already know, it's actually kind of dangerous because the water from the sink can splatter salmonella on your kitchen countertops and, and whatnot. So I had to admit that I was indeed a dummy um, and I never again have, have rinsed off my chicken. Um, why do I share that weird story? Well, when, when Kirsten asked me, why are you doing that? That was a really good question. That was a question that, that kind of challenged my assumptions. It, it changed my perspective and then it, it changed my behavior. I no longer rinse off the, the chicken. My guess would be if you think about it, there's probably been a time in your life when someone has asked you a, a really good question, and it may have been something more serious that, than just whether or not you rinse off your chicken breast. It, it could have been that very same question of why are you doing that? Uh, it could have been a question of um, is that really good for you? Maybe is he, is she really good for you? Uh, it could have been a question of well, what are you so afraid of? It could be the question of but what are you really trying to accomplish? All of these kinds of questions, if they hit us in the right moment at the right time, that they have the power to change our perspective and to challenge our assumptions and then to lead us to 
act differently, think differently, live differently. They can be transformational for us. And that's why, I think, Jesus was constantly asking really good questions. I was reading a scholar this week, and he was saying that he went through the four Gospels in the New Testament, and he counted the number of questions that Jesus asked. I did not check his math. But according to this scholar, he says Jesus asked over 300 questions. And those are just the ones that we have documented. We can imagine he probably asked many, many more. This same scholar says that Jesus is about 40 times more likely to ask a question than to answer a question. I thought that was pretty interesting. Why is Jesus always asking questions? I think it's because Jesus is in the business of transformation. Jesus wants to transform you and me and this world. And I think Jesus knows one powerful way to do that is to ask really good questions. And so all of this is to say, we're going to start a new sermon series today that is called The Questions Jesus Asked. We're going to look at six, not all Jesus' questions, that would be a three-year-long sermon series, but uh, we're going to look at six of the most powerful questions that Jesus asked. And I think that this is a really good time for us to do this series because as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we are now in the season of Lent the season of Lent. Now, some of you are probably coming from a church background where you're already familiar with this season. Others of you may be coming from a church where you didn't celebrate Lent. So so what is Lent? In a nutshell, Lent is this 40-day season where we focus on preparing ourselves to celebrate two of the most significant events in our Christian faith, the death of Jesus that we celebrate on Good Friday and the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate on Easter. And you might say, well, Daniel, why do we need 40 days to to prepare ourselves for that? And, And the short answer is, some events are just too significant to not prepare for. So some events are too significant to not prepare for. We, we know this in other areas of our life. Like um, I think about t- two of the most significant events in, in my life were the birth of my two children. And when, when we knew that our children were on the way, my wife and I did a whole lot of preparation, uh, especially before that first one. We didn't know anything about babies, so we got some books and started reading about babies. And we bought a rocking chair, and we bought a crib, and we bought some cute little onesies and baby chew toys, and we packed a hospital bag, and we arranged for our moms to come and stay with us after the babies were born to help us survive. Some events are just too significant to not prepare for, right? And because my wife and I had done all of that preparation, when the babies finally arrived, we were able to be more fully present. We were able to to savor those moments all the more fully. And so it's kind of similar as we prepare to, to celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so how do we do that work of preparation? Christians historically have often used the season of Lent as a time of fasting. Uh, Fasting uh, is where you go for an extended period of time without food. It's a way of emptying ourselves, a way of reminding ourselves of our dependence on God. Sometimes Christians will do kind of a more of a modified fast where instead of giving up all food, maybe Christians will give up coffee or chocolate or or something to, to create a little more space in our lives for God. 
So that's one way we can, we can subtract things from our lives during Lent. We can also add things to our lives. Sometimes Christians will spend extra time in the season of Lent in prayer, uh, extra time in Bible study, extra time in worship. Sometimes Christians will spend extra time serving, volunteering, or um, practicing financial generosity in a kind of extra way in this season. All of those are ways that we can focus on God and in a sense make this journey with Jesus to the cross once again. So that's what the season of Lent is about. And I think this sermon series where we're exploring these powerful questions Jesus asks, I think that's going to help us to prepare our hearts uh, as well for the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we'll celebrate in about 40 days. So that's the new sermon series. That's where we're going. That's the the season of Lent. Now for today, this first question of Jesus that we're going to talk about, that this is not just a really good question, but I think this may be the most important question Jesus ever asked. Certainly one of the most important that Jesus ever asked, because as we're going to see in a minute, this question gets right to the heart of our relationship with Jesus. So I want to spend a few minutes with you exploring this passage in Luke chapter 9 that Laura read for us a minute ago. And here's the context. We need to kind of set the stage here a little bit. So when we meet Jesus at the beginning of this story, Jesus is right in the middle of a pivotal, pivotal moment. Because in this moment, Jesus is now at the height of his popularity. Jesus, for the past couple years at this point, he's been going around from town to town doing things that's getting people really, really excited. What is Jesus doing? He's been healing people of their diseases. He's been casting out demons. Jesus has even, in some cases, been raising people from the dead. Jesus has been going from synagogue to synagogue, these places of worship, and he's just preaching these, like, killer fire sermons, the best sermons that anybody has ever heard. Uh, Jesus is doing all of these miracles, walking on water, turning water to wine. Right before this scene that we're getting ready to talk about, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Some of you know that story. And according to the Gospel of John, after Jesus fed the 5,000, there was so much like crazy fangirl Jesus energy that the, the crowd rose up and tried to force Jesus to be their king. And Jesus didn't want to be that kind of king, so he had to, like, run away as quickly as he could. That's how wildly popular Jesus was in this moment. But here's the thing. Jesus knows. Jesus knows that the tide is about to turn in a major way. This honeymoon phase that he finds himself in, it's about to come crashing down in a major way. Because Jesus is getting ready to start his journey to Jerusalem. Which means Jesus is getting ready to start his journey to the cross. And Jesus knows that everybody wants to follow him when it's easy. Everybody wants to follow him when he's giving them exactly what they want. But what happens when following Jesus starts to get hard? What happens when Jesus is not giving us exactly what we want? What happens when following Jesus starts to have a cost to it? This is probably a good question for us to be thinking about as we begin this season of Lent. And we're making our own kind of spiritual journey with Jesus to the cross once again. Will we follow Jesus when it's not easy? Will we follow Jesus when there's a cost to it? It's a good thing to be thinking about. Well, in the midst of all of this, in this 
pivotal moment. Jesus takes some time to get away, to get off by himself so that he can spend some time in prayer. So that he can spend some time in prayer. Why, why does Jesus feel the need to, to go off and pray in this moment? It's because with all this popularity swirling around him, all this excitement, people imposing identities and labels on him, people imposing their own expectations on him, Jesus knows that he's got to keep his mind right. He knows he's got to keep his heart right. He knows he has got to stay focused on his God-given mission. As a quick side note, why should you pray on a regular basis, not just when you feel like it? Why should I pray on a regular basis, not just when I feel like it? It's actually for the exact same reason. In this crazy world, we need to keep our mind right. We need to keep our heart right. We need to stay focused on our God-given mission in this life, right? That's a sermon for a different day, but maybe somebody needed to hear that today. So Jesus, he goes off by himself to pray, and and eventually, we don't know how much time passes, but eventually, the disciples, they track him down, they come and they find him. And when the disciples find Jesus, he decides that this would be a good, like, teaching moment. And so Jesus has two questions for the disciples. And the first question is kind of a softball. It's sort of just a a warm-up question. The disciples come to Jesus, and Ask them this. Jesus says, Who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? Uh, There's all these theories going on at this point about who Jesus really is. Um, It's kind of like, you remember at the very beginning of COVID? Like the, like the very beginning of the lockdown, and we didn't really know much about COVID yet or how it worked, and there was all these theories going around. Like one theory was that it spreads on surfaces, and so we were wiping down our groceries, and remember, like in my family, um, we would leave our Amazon boxes in the garage for at least 24 hours before we would go anywhere near them. Uh, that was a theory that was going around, or, or some, uh, some people thought that COVID was going to give us all stomach problems, and so you remember there was no toilet paper in any of the stores. Everybody's hoarding toilet paper. That was another theory that was going around. So it's not exactly the same, but it's kind of the same with Jesus. There, there's all these theories uh, at this time about who he is. So he asked the disciples... Tell me some of these theories. What do people say? Who, who do people say that I am? And I think the disciples probably breathed a sigh of relief because th- this is a pretty easy question for them to answer. A lot of times Jesus would ask really hard questions. They didn't know the answer, but they're like, oh, we know this, Jesus. So they, they answered. They say, well, you know, some people say that you're like John the Baptist. And that kind of makes sense. That's Jesus' cousin. So I'm sure there was some sort of family resemblance. That was one theory. Uh, They say, you know, other people say that you're Elijah. Elijah is this Old Testament prophet who did a lot of miracles that are pretty similar to the miracles that Jesus had been doing. So kind of see where that theory came from. Uh, Other people say that one of the ancient prophets has come back to life. You know, Jesus, in these killer sermons that he was always preaching, he was often quoting from the Old Testament prophets, or at least channeling the themes of the Old Testament prophets. So you can kind of see what, where, these, where these theories come from. Well, the disciples answer this, this question, and they're feeling good about themselves. They've, they've given a good answer to Jesus, but that's when Jesus drops the really good question, because the next question that Jesus asks makes all of this much, much, much more personal. So Jesus says this in verse 20. He asked them, and what about you? What about you? Who who do you say that I am? 
I think what Jesus is driving at here is uh, he's kind of saying, in effect, listen, um, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. I'm getting ready to go to the cross. Being my disciple is about to get a lot harder than it has been before. It's about to get a lot more costly than it has been before. And if you're going to stick with me on this leg of my journey, you're going to need some clarity. You're going to need to know in your head and in your heart, who do you say that I am? It's a good question for us to be thinking about as we start our journey in Lent with Jesus to the cross. Who do you say that I am? I don't know how that question might land with you this morning. I was reflecting on it this week, and uh, honestly, I find this pretty convicting because uh, here's the thing, um, I grew up in church like many of you. I grew up going to Sunday school like many of you. I even went to seminary, which is like Sunday school on steroids. And because of that, I know the right answer to this question. I know all the right answers, just like many of you do as well. Who do I say that you are, Jesus? Oh, you are the Son of God. You are the Word made flesh. You're the second person of the Trinity. The Apostle Paul says that you are the image of the invisible God. I could keep going. I could quote lines from the creeds and all of this, but, but I hear Jesus saying, okay, okay, that's good, and that's true, but, but is that who you really say that I am? Like, like, who do your actions say that I am? Who do your priorities say that I am? Who does your money say that I am? Who does your time say that I am? If you look at your life, who does your life say that I am? I tried to think this week, uh, even though it was painful, I tried to think, okay, how would I honestly answer that? And I'll share a couple of things I came up with with you because maybe you can relate to this as well. Uh, who do you say that I am? Well, Jesus, uh, honestly, sometimes I say that you are nothing more than just like a genie. You know, I, I bring you my wishes. I bring you my wishes and I expect you to grant them as if your only job, Jesus, is to help me get more of what I want. Uh, who do I say that you are, Jesus? Uh, sometimes, honestly, I say that you're nothing more than just like my political ally, my political sidekick. I love to quote you on social media. I love to reference you in my political debates as if your only job is to help me prove how right I am and how wrong other people are. Who do I say that you are, Jesus? Honestly, sometimes I say you're nothing more than this like invisible 24-7 on-call therapists, that, that I, I bring you my problems when I feel like talking, and we only ever talk about me as if your only job is to help me work on me. I don't know if any of that relates for any of you. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with telling Jesus what we want or referencing Jesus in our political engagement or sharing our problems with, with Jesus, all that's good stuff. But if that's all we say about who Jesus is, if that's all the, that makes up our relationship to Jesus, then we have a problem. And the problem is that in all of these cases, I'm not actually following Jesus. I'm trying to get Jesus to follow me. You see? 
I'm not actually trying to serve Jesus. I'm busy trying to get Jesus to serve me. I'm not pursuing the way of Jesus. I'm trying to get Jesus to pursue the way of me. If all I do is tell Jesus about the things that I want and I never stop to ask Jesus, what is it that you want? Or if all I do is try to get Jesus to support me in my political arguments and I never stop to ask Jesus, what is your perspective on justice? Jesus, how can I align myself to that? If all we do is talk to Jesus about our problems and we never stop to think about Jesus, what are the problems that you care about? What are the problems that you have with me or with this world that I need to be working on? If we're not thinking in that way, then we're not really fully following Jesus. We're trying to get Jesus to follow us, right? And if we're not following Jesus, then we're never going to get where Jesus wants us to go. Do you see? Where does Jesus want us to go? Uh, One of the things he tells us is that he came into this world to lead us into abundant life. Abundant life. Not a life that is easy. Not a life free of hardship or struggle or pain, but abundant life. What does that mean? It means love that is unconditional. It means peace that passes all understanding. It means joy that we can find in any circumstances. It means hope, even in the face of death. I don't know about you, but I want that life. I want abundant life. And what Jesus is saying to us in this passage, I think, is he's saying, listen, you're never going to get there if you don't stop trying to get me to follow you all the time and turn around and follow me. Turn around and follow me. And so that's why in the middle of this, pivotal moment as he's getting ready to make this difficult journey to the cross he's saying hey we need some clarity here who's really following who in this situation who do you say that I am and if we want to follow Jesus into that abundant life that he wants for us then we have to be able to echo the words of Peter in this passage just echo these words with, uh, with, with words, but echo these with our heart and echo these with our lives. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ sent from God. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Savior. Jesus, you are the way and the truth and the life. You are God and I am not So Jesus, I'm going to stop trying to get you to follow me and I'm going to turn around and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. And so in closing here, um, here's my encouragement for you. Over these next 40-ish days between now and Easter, what is one way, what is one way that you can stop trying to get Jesus to follow you and turn around and instead to follow Jesus. How might you do that? There may already be something on your mind or or on your heart that you're thinking of. I'll give you a couple of suggestions. One way to do this is to, to spend some time in prayer in this season. And not just praying about the things that you want, but, but trying to pray about the things that Jesus wants. We, we have a group uh, that's not too late to join, a group of folks in our church that's going to be praying every day on their own during the season of Lent, and then they get together once a week to talk about it and reflect on that experience. Not too late to join that group. The information in your newsletter. Uh, another way 
that, that we can make sure that we're truly following Jesus is to spend some more time thinking about Jesus, getting to know Jesus better, getting to know Jesus' agenda and his, and his heart. I'm leading a book club in this season. It's not too late to join. You can sign up uh, information in your, in your newsletter. That's a great way to do that. You may have other ways of doing that. It, it may be that in this season you need to spend some more time in service, some more time volunteering. It may be in this season that you need to step up your financial generosity, All of these are ways that we can say, not just with our words, but with our lives, Jesus, you are the Christ. Jesus, you are God, and I am not, and I'm going to follow you. Following Jesus is not always easy. Following Jesus sometimes involves a cost. But if we can humble ourselves, if we can surrender and submit and trust Jesus to get us where we want to go, then Jesus will lead us step by step, more and more fully. Jesus will lead us into abundance life. Let me pray for us. Oh God, we, um, we confess to you that so often our lives are driven by our own agenda and we don't turn to you as often as we should seeking your agenda for our life, Lord. Uh, Passages like this uh, challenge us to to think about that convicting question of of who's following who, of who's really in charge, God. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth of the message, that our lives are so much better when when we stop trying to get you to follow us so that we can turn and, and follow you. God, we do this in all kinds of ways in our lives, and so we pray that for each person here, each person listening to this, that you would open us up to help us know how is it that that you're calling us to take a new step in this season? How is it that you're calling us to get our priorities straight so that we can say not just with our words but with our lives that you are God and we are not and that we're following you and trusting you to lead the way into abundant life. We thank you, God, for your patience with us. We thank you, God, for your guidance. More than anything, we thank you for your unconditional love for us. And we pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. As we sing.